Well, good evening to you all. It is a stormy night. Uh, this is not typical for Portland, I understand. Uh, it's more, much more typical for Dallas. Uh, and I, uh, first of all, need to begin by apologizing for my appearance. Uh, my barber has kind of um, taken a holiday for some time. She, she gives me a haircut twice a year, whether I need it or not. And uh, she's just been a little slow lately. She's been cutting my hair for 39 years. Uh, after our first year of marriage, we moved to Dallas so I could go to seminary. And uh, my wife learned how to cut hair, and so she's been my only barber since then. We've been married 40 years. And she can't stand the sight of me right now because of my hair. But nevertheless, it's, I don't know who to blame on that. But um, I'm going to be addressing this first lecture an extraordinarily difficult subject. Not just difficult, but uh, highly sensitive and inflammatory, one that uh, people take sides on in so many different directions. Uh, there is um, an awful lot of uh, hatred that is being spewed forth on both sides of the issue in the country right now. And so I'm going to try to address this in three parts homosexuality in the church. The first part is going to be going through what Paul says about this in Romans chapter 1, just a brief exposition of that. And even though the notes are detailed, we're going to be flying through the first two pages, I think, pretty quickly. And then we'll talk about some very specific things that Paul is addressing and that he is not addressing. And then finally, I want to make 10 suggestions about how we ought to think about the issue. Just today, in fact, when I was on the airplane uh, flying here from Dallas, uh, I, I got uh, an email message from the Heritage Foundation that a couple in Idaho, uh, a pastor, uh, uh, both uh, husband and wife are pastors in a Foursquare Gospel Church, uh, have refused to uh, perform the wedding for a gay couple, and the state law is uh, basically saying you will need to spend as much as a year in jail uh, for not doing this wedding, and you will pay us $1,000 a day if you refuse to do it. So you can see that we have certain kinds of tensions in our country that are very, very difficult to deal with, and um, I'm not going to have all the answers for you, but at least I can share with you what I think the Bible teaches in fact, I'm quite sure it teaches this, and we'll see where we can go from there. Well, let me, let me begin by mentioning a book by Dan Kimball that came out seven years ago. Dan Kimball is a postmodern pastor and a fundamentalist pastor. Uh, those two normally don't go together, but uh, he's, he's a, a, a rock-solid um, evangelical, and he has a church in Santa Clara, California, he wrote this book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, published by Zondervan, which is the world's largest Christian publishing house and thoroughly evangelical. And uh, this book was based on interviews he had with students, especially at Berkeley University, at Cal State Berkeley. And what he discovered in interviewing hundreds and hundreds of students is that they spoke fondly of Jesus, even though they may not understand who he really is but they did not speak quite so fondly of Christians. And so he titled his book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And Dan is a, is a friend of mine. I've spoken at his church. He has acted out on this by learning how to genuinely love his neighbors and um, care for them as human beings to begin with, uh, as well as bring them the gospel. And just this week, I also saw a book by Philip Yancey, where uh, Yancey is, um, oops, are we, are, did, did everything look right to you guys? Uh, could we get the back screen on so I could see what, what I'm supposed to be looking at? Can't do that? Okay. Well, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wing it. That's all right. So uh, Philip Yancey is, is publishing a book that was just mentioned in Christianity Today, I think just yesterday. And uh, it's, it's about uh, uh, learning to uh, show grace again. It's kind of a lost art. And in this uh, CT article, they start with three tweets. 
one by Mike J. If Christianity is based on hope and forgiveness, why are the majority of Christians terribly judgmental? Whether that's true or not, that's definitely the perception out there. And Chris says, Christianity sucks the life out of everything and everybody. Ryan says, church isn't the problem, Christians are the problem. Instead of being filled with grace and redemption, churches are filled with judgment and exclusion. So this attitude that the world has of us, that we are judgmental, is something that we need to learn how to address. And here's the fine balance that we have. It's a very difficult balance. On the one hand, we want to love uh, all people. On the other hand, we do also love a holy God. And he has holy standards that we need to live by. Well, this whole business about uh, uh, our judgmental attitude towards outsiders, especially now as the, the, probably the number one cultural issue is uh, the gay community in relation to the church, uh, it's a major cultural arena where this is evident, and that is the, the church's response to the uh, LGBT community, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Now, our goals for this lecture, as I already said, to give a brief exposition of Romans 1, 21 through 28, an exposition of Paul's view on homosexual behavior, and then 10 considerations for addressing the LGBT community. Let me begin by giving you an overview of Romans. And I understand this is one of the Route 66 books that you're not looking at in the church, so I guess you've got a Route 65. That sounds deficient in my mind. Uh, but uh, So I'll give you a very quick overview of Romans tonight. And you can begin each section of Romans with an S. Now, did I put this in here? I guess there's not even enough room to take notes. I wouldn't even try to take notes because I may be going over some of this stuff pretty quickly. But basically, the theme of Romans is the justification of God in the gospel, specifically a vindication of God's righteousness in the gospel that Paul preaches. And here's the basic way you want to think about what Romans is teaching. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, brought people into the church and said, you Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be saved. You Gentiles don't need to follow the Jewish food laws to be saved. You don't need to follow all, all these other scruples to be saved. You simply need to put your faith in Jesus. There were Jewish Christians who had very strong objections to what Paul was saying. And in Acts chapter 15, the, uh, the church leaders got together in Jerusalem and had a, a, a council in A.D. 49 to decide how they should approach Gentile inclusion. And they essentially agreed with Paul that Gentiles did not need to become Jews in order to get into the kingdom. But those were issues that uh, Paul had some aggressive Jewish Christians, and we might even use that word Christian loosely, who constantly attacked him and said, this is a concession you're making to get Gentiles in, to make your followers that much more in number, and at the same time, uh, not to uh, really have them be devoted believers in God. What Paul does in Romans is he turns that entire argument on its head. And this is a, an absolutely masterful letter. It is the most important letter that has ever been written. And what he says in here is that, no, if you want to argue that they must do all these things to get saved then you have both cheapened the gospel and you have denied the holiness of God. Well, how is that possible? That's what I'll be explaining in the second message tonight. But he starts with a salutation, then sinners, 118 through 320, which is the section we'll be in, he talks about how the whole world is full of sinners. Then he brings in the good news about salvation. And as a corollary to salvation, or what follows on salvation, is sanctification. That is, that once a person is saved, they are to grow in grace, and Paul talks about that. And that's chapters 6 through 8. Then he has what to some people look like a diversion, which is uh, speaking of God's sovereignty, and it's especially God's sovereignty in relationship to the nation of Israel, chapters 9, 10, and 11. The second section, this is another way you could outline Romans, you could say you're dealing with uh, the, the facts or the truth, 
And then you're dealing with the application of the truth in the second section of Romans, beginning in chapter 12, which is all about service. Service to other Christians in the church, service within our community to the government, how we owe taxes, services within the church where you've got uh, stronger and weaker brothers and sisters. And then finally, Paul addresses the saints in Rome. Even though he had never been to Rome, he knows quite a few of these people. Some of them had visited him in Corinth, others he knows by name, others he may have seen along the, uh, his travels. But that's what Romans basically covers. Now, to give you the theme or the overview of the very section we're in, on sinners, Paul makes three essential points. Gentiles are sinners, and that's 118 through 32. He goes on a tirade in this section that is probably the, the most uh, uh, condemning section of humanity ever written in Scripture. It's remarkable. The, the amazing thing is that even though the theme of Romans is the justification of God in Paul's gospel, the occasion for him writing it is that he wanted to go to Spain and bring the, the gospel to uh, the Spaniards. He mentions this in chapter 15. And he wanted to come to Rome first and get some missionary support. He wanted to use Rome as a base of support for that. So in a very real sense, Romans is a missionary support letter. Have you ever seen a missionary support letter where they spend the first fourth of the letter condemning everybody, including the readers? <laughs> that's not the way you get money, Paul. I mean, what are you, what are you thinking here? Uh, and yet that's... Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder and, and first president of Dallas Seminary, once made the comment that the Bible is not the sort of a book that a man would write if he could write, and not the sort of a book that he could write if he would write. That is, it's not, it sounds like the, how much wood can a woodchuck chuck, but it's really a little bit more serious than that. It's not the kind of a book that somebody would write if he could, uh, in that uh, it condemns all of us. You don't do that and make that the number one best popular, uh, uh, most popular book in, in history, uh, unless something's going on here that's uh, more than just on a human level. Gentiles are sinners. Paul paints a panoramic picture of all of human history in the first chapter. Then he says Jews are sinners in chapter 2. And he begins by saying, you who judge one another do not realize that you do the same things. So after the Jews, the Jewish Christians are jumping on the bandwagon and say, yeah, Paul, go after these guys. This is great. He says, you're doing the same thing. Oh, and then finally, in chapter 3, he goes through a litany and just kind of quotes a bunch of Old Testament texts, especially from the Psalms and Isaiah, to say everyone is a, a sinner. All of us are under the judgment of God. We all deserve hell. That's the good news that Paul gives us. Well, actually, he gets into the good news in the section I'll cover later this evening. So after his salutation, and after he talks about the righteousness of God in 117, then he gives us... Uh, Romans 1, 21 through 28. And I will be quoting from the ESV on occasion. On other occasions, I'll be putting up my own translation. And you can decide whether you like it or not. In Romans 1, 17, Paul talks about the revelation of the righteousness of God. And then in 1, 18, as he gets into this section on sin, he talks about the revelation of the wrath of God. And here he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so this, this section, it's kind of the opening volley that God has revealed his wrath against us in that we see it in nature, we see it in our conscience, we see it in our own personal history. Every human being knows that there is a God. And what Paul says in this section, it's remarkable, is that there is really no such thing as an atheist. I've spent some time in Israel. What I've discovered is that approximately 80% of Israelis claim to be atheists. Why is it that they claim to be atheists? Well, the number one reason is the Holocaust. Six million Jews killed by Hitler. Is that really what makes them an atheist? Or does it make them angry at God for not, protect, for not protecting them? 
I don't think they really are atheists as much as they're just not at all happy that God did not protect six million Jews. And Paul tells us here there is no such thing as an atheist. Everyone has an innate understanding and belief in God. And uh, what's really, really fascinating is if you talk to atheists, about 95% of them have come from a religious home. And they made some kind of a commitment to the Lord early on. And when they grew up, they decided they didn't want to uh, hold true to that commitment. And so what they've done is they've essentially said, if I could deny the existence of the one I've committed my life to, then I'm, I'm scot-free. Well, Paul says in Romans 1, 19 through 23, he speaks about the descent into depravity. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, right there he's saying humanity is theistic. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, within this section, Paul begins, or has a a very important point about an exchange, and here we see the first exchange. What we're going to see in Romans 1, 21 through 28, are three exchanges where people have exchanged something about God for something else. And then there's three abandonments where God has abandoned them three times because of this exchange. So first, in verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. A little bit more literal translation is they changed the glory of the immortal God into the likeness of an image of mortal man and of birds and of four-footed animals and reptiles. What this exchange is, is people looked at the glory of God, and instead of glorifying God as God, they have instead worshipped not an image. It's very interesting what Paul says here. He doesn't say they worshipped an image, but they worshipped the likeness of an image. So it's two steps removed from reality. And the image could be of mortal man or birds, four-footed animals, reptiles, this kind of thing. This descent into depravity, then, is not only a descent away from reality of worshiping the true God, but it's even away from physical reality, because the very things that they worship are idols of idols, if you will. And then Paul talks about idolatry and sexual sin, and here's a point that I want to stress. Idolatry and adultery, or idolatry and sexual sin, if we want to speak about it more broadly, almost always go hand in glove. And the reason for that is because idolatry, as much as someone may want to think this is just a spiritual thing, and by idolatry I mean the worship of anything other than the true God is idolatry. Whether it be false gods that somebody actually does cognitively worship, or whether it's money or materialism or fame or anything along those lines, or the weather you have in Portland, well, not today, but uh, other times. Uh, Anything like that, if it replaces the worship of the true God, it has implications for sexual sin. And the reason it does is because we are not just spiritual creatures. We are not just mental creatures. We're not just uh, people who have thoughts about God or thoughts about worship or whatever. Our minds are connected to our hearts, which are connected to our bodies. And consequently, idolatry almost always is related to sexual sin at some point. You cannot divorce your mind from your body. And so verses 24 through 27, we see the first uh, abandonment. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged. Here's the second exchange. The truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now we see the second time that God gives, gives these people up. For their women, and it's right here in verses 26 and 27 that we deal with homosexual behavior. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
what Paul is saying here is their women exchanged the natural relationship that they would have with men for that which is contrary to nature, namely lesbian activities. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this first abandonment is where God delivered them up. It's the language of arrest and imprisonment. And this is one of these things that I found fascinating about this text is this verb that is used, deliver up, is frequently, if not normally, used of arresting somebody or committing somebody to a prison or police, something like this. For example, Matthew 4.12, the same verb is used. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been delivered up, that is, that he had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Matthew 20.18, the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests. He will be arrested and handed over to the chief priests and scribes. You have this kind of thing over and over and over again. And God actually is delivering up sinners. But in what sense did he deliver them up? This is a passage that can be troubling if you're thinking in terms of, has God abandoned me? In what sense did God deliver them up? Well, there's three basic views. One is that he abstains from interfering. That is, he, he has a passive role when people go into sin and God just backs off and says, uh, you're going to do what you're going to do and I'm, I'm, I'm not a part of it. The problem with that view is that the verb that is used each time is an active voice verb in Greek. He delivered up. It's not that they were delivered up. It's rather that God actively delivered them up. So it's pretty hard to make uh, the, the argument that this is God abstaining from interfering in people's lives. The second possibility is that he moves human beings to a sinful lifestyle. That is, that God actually tempts people. People go in a certain direction, and God tempts them to even sin more. Well, that's a problem, too, because James, for example, says that uh, no one can tempt God, and God uh, doesn't tempt others. And uh, so we don't see that. There's no comfort anywhere in Scripture for the argument that God is one who tempts people to sin. But there's still this active sense of him delivering them up. The third view, which is between these two, and I think this is really comes closest to the whole thing, is that God permits idolatrous human beings to sin, even to plumb the depths of their own depravity. And in so doing, this is, in, on his part, an act of judgment and an act of mercy. If some of you came from a rough background where maybe you were a drug addict or an alcoholic or your life was just in shambles, or you have friends or relatives who have been in that situation, and they came to faith in Jesus Christ, often what you discover is the very person who comes to faith comes to faith when they are at the end of the rope. Not before then. They have to go down to the depths to discover, I can't hack this anymore. And it is an act of judgment on God's part to bring them to this place, and an act of mercy to wake them up to that. It's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son was feeding pigs after he'd spent all his money on prostitutes. He's a Jewish boy, and he's feeding pigs, and he says, I've got to eat the slop that they're getting. That's the best food I can get. That's just remarkable. It's, it's just as low as a Jew could possibly go, and that's when he wakes up and realizes, maybe my dad will take me back. That's the attitude that we need to come to God with, frankly, of, we are sick and tired of our own sin, and we realize that we have really messed things up. Well, there's something I wanted to deal with, and I, I think I'm going to... Uh, this, this gets to be a little bit too tricky to go on, so even though you've got the outline there and you've got uh, a retranslation of the verse, you have no idea what it means, don't worry about it. It won't be on the test. I'm not going to put that on there, so don't, you don't need to think about it. Romans 1, 24 through 27, is this delivering up a final judgment? No, it can't be a final judgment. The whole context is against it. Paul is dealing with people as sinners before he gets to talking about God as Savior. In 118 through 320, he marches through and says, Gentiles are sinners, Jews are sinners, everybody's a sinner. And then he says, but God has given us grace. He has his righteousness is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Obviously, if this were a final judgment, then Paul would not write anything after 3.20. All he would do is just condemn the whole world, say, Amen, send me money. But he doesn't do that. He goes on, and the judgment is not final. The cross is also against this. There is not a single sin that we can commit that cannot be paid by Jesus Christ. And as long as there is life, there is hope. If you ever wondered, by the way, why the Bible never tells us to love the devil or demons. Did you ever notice that? The reason, I think, is because there is no hope for them. They are evil through and through. They will spend all of eternity in hell. But there is hope for human beings. And we are commanded to love all human beings. Well, here's another question that has plagued me over the years. Can Christians be delivered up by God to depravity? I think the answer to that is no, God does not deliver us up to this depravity. There are things that come close to this. That is, there are times in your life when you're sinning, especially um, in, in some ways where you get snared in some habits But there's a major difference between what's going on here in Romans 1 and talking about God delivering up certain sinners to even a worse uh, aspect of sin, and that is that God's wrath is on them. That's what Paul said in Romans 1.18. The revelation of the wrath of God has come. God's wrath is not on Christians. We are not waiting for the other shoe to drop. And the reason we are not is because Jesus Christ has paid the price. And consequently, we're we're not under God's wrath. We are not ever punished by God. There's a a distinction that uh, may be too fine of a point for some folks between punishment and discipline. The objective of punishment is basically uh, to uh, satisfy the, the wrath of the one who's doing the punishing. The objective of discipline is restorative. It's to restore that person into a right relationship. And God disciplines his children, but he punishes those who have turned against him forever. Christians cannot be delivered up by God to depravity, but we can still come very close to this. The the major difference is, and this is the irony of the whole thing, Christians cannot enjoy sin as much as non-Christians can. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit is not about to let you have that much fun with it. And so you get more miserable than they do. He's working on your heart to sanctify you, and he will bring you back at some point. Okay, the second exchange in 125 is who changed the truth of God into the lie, or into a lie. And uh, I take it that the truth of God is the true God, that is... These people have exchanged the true God. This is a Greek construction. For those of you who ha- who've had Greek, this is known as an attributed genitive, and that won't show up on the test either. Maybe a bonus question. But uh, the truth of God is the true God. They have exchanged the true God. And in the Greek, it doesn't say into a lie, but it's into the lie. I take it that the lie is the lie about God. And so this is a, a fascinating way in which Paul is essentially saying that what sinners do, what all of us do when we lived in, in, in our own sinfulness and we uh, worship things other than the true God, is we change the worship of the true God for the worship of the false God. We essentially say that the true God is evil and we worship the devil. And I'm not saying this happens consciously, but that's what we are essentially doing. So that's the second exchange. They, they change the true God into the false God. Then you have the second abandonment. God delivered them up to the desires of their hearts so that these desires could punish them with dishonorable passions. This is an expanded translation. I take it that this is really saying the same thing. The first uh, abandonment, God delivers people up to these uh, illicit passions. Dishonorable passions uses a cognate of the same word. So I think he's saying the same thing. I don't see this as a progressive point. This is going to be important as we look at homosexuality and how bad that is as a sin. Is Paul making a progressive argument where homosexual activity is the worst of all possible sins, or is he just simply piling on the, uh, the, the uh, expressions to tell us how bad sin is and that this is one form of it? 
I take it that it's probably the latter. Then we have the third exchange, and now we're starting to get into the very text that we're going to be dealing with. For their females, this is my translation, for their females exchange the natural sexual relations for that which is against nature. Almost all translations have for their women, but that's not what the word in Greek is. It's females. And that's going to be a very important point later. I'll just leave it at that for now. And what they did is they exchanged the natural sexual relations for that which is against nature. The point I want to stress here, and we'll again uh, stress it later, is what this means is that there is a physical design. We're not dealing with inclinations. We're not dealing with women who have an inclination to be heterosexual and then end up being homosexual. No, that's not what Paul's addressing. He's talking about the physical design and, and why he uses the word female. And in the next verse, he uses male instead of men and women is going to become clear. Verse 27, likewise also the males abandoned the natural sexual relations with the females and burned in their desires for one another with the result that males in males, not with males, but in males, committed shameless acts. It's a pretty graphic picture, isn't it? The, the Greek really cannot bear the sense of males with males or men with men. It is speaking about the sex act between two men, and uh, the language is absolutely unequivocal. We have to tone that down in translation at times, because if, if we translated the Bible in as earthy a way as Paul expressed it, you might think he was Martin Luther. Uh, well, that's probably not a bad idea. But um, uh, this is literally saying with the result that males in males committed shameless acts and received in their own persons the necessary penalty for their error. I want you to notice, besides the males in males, which we've already talked about, but the for one another. The males committed these acts and burned in their desires for one another. This is a reciprocal relationship that Paul is addressing, and the Greek cannot mean anything other than a reciprocal relationship. In other words, there's mutual responsibility because there's mutual volition involved. Okay, third abandonment. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God delivered them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. It seems almost as if to the point of saying that they, uh, if they said this is black, God says it's white. If they call it white, it's really black. Um, that uh, this depraved mind is twisted in its understanding of all of reality. Now, that was a brief exposition of the text. Shoot, it took a little longer than I wanted. What time am I supposed to, to uh, quit? And where, where's Bob? Did he leave already? <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, what, what time am I supposed to quit this first hour? I didn't know when, when we started, Bob. For this first hour? Okay, I thought, you don't, want, you don't want me going on that long. So, As we go through this, this kind of picks up some steam in terms of, I think, the interest and, and the value of this, but it was important for me to at least lay out uh, kind of the groundwork for you to show where we need to go with this. Paul's view of homosexual behavior. This, does this bring us to page three? Is that... Wow, I am moving so fast. Normally I'm still stuck on the preface at this stage. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and 20, verse 13, we read, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. A lot of Christians like to use the Levitical code to condemn homosexuality. And what I want to say is I think that's a very bad approach, a wrong-headed approach. That's not the only thing that's considered an abomination. So is eating pork or even rabbit, explicitly called an abomination in the Pentateuch. And yet we wouldn't call those things an abomination today unless you decide not to have bacon and eggs ever. But um, the abomination was something that was restricted to Judaism. What's fascinating to me is that in this very section that Paul starts off talking about the sinfulness of humanity, he doesn't bring in Leviticus. He doesn't quote this verse. He grounds his argument in something entirely different. 
And uh, as I've studied this, uh, this book for uh, several years now, uh, here's what I've noticed. What Paul does is he appeals to God's design. He doesn't appeal to judgment. He makes a positive appeal. And this is an interesting point. In this criticism, in this judgment of homosexual behavior, and by the way, Paul is not condemning homosexuality. He's condemning homosexual behavior. I'll need to address what that is here, the difference between those two in a minute. But in, in doing this, he is appealing to a positive element, namely how God designed men and women. And he appeals to Genesis 1.27, where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Paul has used the word female in verse 26 and the word male in verse 27, reminiscent of Genesis 1.27. It's not the kind of language that Paul normally used. These are rare words. They go all the way back to the very beginning and to the whole creation narrative we have in the very beginning of Genesis. What Paul is appealing to is pre-law. I take it that Paul would say Christians are no longer under the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, because Jesus has fulfilled the law and we no longer live by it. Uh, We have nine of the Ten Commandments that are repeated in the New Testament as normative, but not the Sabbath, which is interesting. And yet there are other laws that never get repeated, and those that do get repeated are because the Old Testament law picked up on some things that are normative for all time. It gets to be a little bit difficult to explain all this, but here's the basic point I want to stress. I take it that when Jesus came, he did not come uh, to obey the law so that we would also need to obey the law. He also explicitly said, I have not come to abolish the law or destroy it, but he came to fulfill the law. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, is that Christ is the end of the law. In other words, he has fulfilled it, we are no longer under it. We are no longer under the food laws. We're no longer under uh, other aspects of the law. No longer uh, is uh, the circumcision law um, relevant to us today. So Paul was adamant about this. Romans 6.14, he says, You are not under law, but under grace, and therefore you are free to serve God and please him better. Many places he talks about this. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 25 In a number of places, Paul talks about how we are no longer under the law. Now, you say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we don't go to church on Sunday? Well, actually, Paul says in Romans 14, you don't have to honor any day above another. And what he was essentially saying was, some Christians will choose to honor the Sabbath, others will not. And by the Sabbath, it really meant Friday night at nightfall until Saturday night at nightfall. It never meant Sunday. Sunday was never called the Sabbath in the Bible. It was called the Lord's Day or the first day of the week. And so there's a lot of things that I think we have kind of popular Christianity that we have imported into our lives today. Well, I don't work on the Sabbath. And when we say that, what what I mean is I don't work on Sunday. Or I go to church on the Sabbath. And we mean go to church on Sunday. But that's not... Biblical terminology, that's not ever how the terminology is used. Sabbath is talking about Friday night until Saturday night. And so Paul is in kind of a quandary, if you will. He is condemning homosexual behavior, but he can't use the law to do it. So what does he appeal to? He appeals to the Genesis account about how God designed men and women. And he says that God designed all the animals so they would multiply and uh, be fruitful and multiply, and human beings to do the same thing. And then in Genesis 2, we read the account of how God created Adam. Adam named all the animals. And what that did is it created a huge desire on Adam's part, saying, you know, I I think I'm getting gypped in this deal here, God. Uh, I don't see anybody that really is kind of suitable for me. I see all these other animals that look like they could uh, do some things together, but uh, that's not the case for me. And God is trying to create in Adam this sense of a need for a counterpart, a woman. Paul uses that argument. And what's really interesting about Paul's arguments about marriage and about uh, sexual purity is he always goes back to the Genesis account. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, he goes back to the Genesis account. In 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 11, he goes back to the Genesis account. Galatians 3, he does the same thing. Well, Paul is basically saying, not let's cite Leviticus as the reason why homosexual behavior is wrong. Let's talk positively about how God has designed things. Does that make sense? That should tell us something, too, about how we should approach this issue. That is, we do need to speak positively about what God's design for us is. Third, he's not speaking about just pederasty. That is, sex between an adult man and a boy. That was what did happen in Roman society. And um, uh, the, uh, the men would often get these uh, slave boys and they'd have sex with them uh, typically until the men got married or they would often do it after they were married as well. But, but, and, and a number of scholars say that's what Paul's talking about here. That's not the case. Because in 127 he says in Greek, isolelus, or for one another. They burned in their desires for one another. That's a reciprocal pronoun. It's used 100 times in the New Testament exactly. And every time it means a reciprocal relationship. That can't be the case if you've got one man raping a boy. It's not a reciprocal relationship. This is where mutual volition is involved. And so is pederasty ruled out? Yes, of course Paul says that's evil. But he's also saying so is sex between uh, two men who are uh, both voluntary in, in the endeavor. And so I've heard scholar after scholar say, yeah, that this is what it's talking about, or male prostitution. No, it's more than that. Paul is talking about the whole thing that is, that, uh, is uh, involved. Fourth, he is not addressing inclination, but physical design. We've talked about this already, about the natural sexual relations, the phrase that's used both in verse 26 with women and verse 27 with men. And he said that they are doing things which is against nature. This phrase against nature is used only one other time in the entire Bible, and it's used in Romans 11.24. And there Paul speaks about how the wild olive branch is grafted in to the cultivated olive branch, which is against nature. That is, you don't normally go and do this thing. It's against the physical design of the whole thing is what he's getting at. That's what he means here as well. So there are some who would like to say, well, if a woman has a natural inclination towards lesbianism, then she's not acting against nature. So Paul is not prohibiting that. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about inclination, but physical design. And so he's not talking about an emotional norm or something along those lines, or what so many transgenders claim is I'm I'm a, a woman trapped in a man's body, this kind of thing. Fifth, he is not just addressing current cultural values. And what's key here is verse 26. Paul starts with women engaged in sexual relations with other women. That was completely taboo in Roman society. Now, we read about it in the 5th and 6th century B.C. uh, on the island of Lesbos, where a woman by the name of Sappho had a finishing school for women, and she was uh, training them to learn how to love their husbands, and the way she trained them to make love to their husbands was with other women. Uh, She wrote some poems. We have some of that material today. We do, in fact, get the word lesbian from the island of Lesbos. Now, i got to tell you, this is is just fun to talk about. Uh, As as, uh, your pastor pointed out, I travel all over the world to photograph manuscripts of the Bible, and I have been to the island of Lesbos. It's, it's an island that Paul went to. It's called Mytilene in the book of Acts. And it still uses both names simultaneously. So we get to the island, and we're looking for monasteries that have these Greek manuscripts. And we found out about a place called Club Benjamin. Now, Lesbos is the third largest island of the 3,000 islands in Greece. It's a huge island. It takes quite a bit of time to drive all over the place. And so... We found out about this place called Club Benjamin in this little town on, on, the, uh, on the west coast. And so I said, what in the world is a place called Club Benjamin doing owning a Greek manuscript that's a thousand years old? What kind of a club is this? I was just, my, my curiosity was really piqued. So there were uh, four of us who drove 
uh, to get to the uh, west coast and get to this little town. And I'm, I'm trying to uh, ask people where Club Benjamin is in, in broken modern Greek. I can read ancient Greek, modern Greek. I'm not quite so good at speaking. And they especially don't understand my pronunciation. And uh, so I'm asking them if they knew where Club Benjamin was. Everybody said, no, I've never heard of it. And uh, so we drove down to the center of town, and that's where basically the, the, the harbor was. And there, on the second story, right at, just in the center, was this building that was about 125 years old or so. And it said, Benjamin o Lesbios. Benjamin the lesbian. That's Club Benjamin. And we went into it, and it was a club for old people. Really old people. I thought it was a disco or something. I go, what in the world's... I didn't know what it was, but it was people that are, you know, one foot in the grave, and that's and it's basically these old men that like to watch uh, the scantily clad girls that come ashore every day. And they had a Greek New Testament manuscript there. So I asked about that, and they had actually sent it off to Athens to have it digitized by uh, another company, but nevertheless, that was a, a fascinating trip. So I came home, and I asked my students, is it possible for a man to be a lesbian? The answer to that is yes, of course. If you are a resident of Lesbos, you are a, res you are a lesbian, whether you're a man or a woman. So now you know the trivia thing for the evening. But here's the point. Lesbianism, 500 years before Paul wrote to the Romans, was in vogue in Greek society. It never caught on in Roman society, and it wasn't in vogue in Greek society when Paul wrote either. He was not addressing just current cultural values. He was addressing values that spanned the history of time, and he was looking at things from long ago, centuries before his time, up to the modern era. He also is grounding his argument in creation. That's why he uses females and males, going back to Genesis 1.27. That'll become very important as we look at how uh, we look at some of these issues. And mutual culpability, we've already talked about that with one another in verse 27. So let me give you a conclusion. I want to quote from Luke Timothy Johnson to begin with. He's a professor. This is the conclusion to the second part. And then we can get to the third part, I guess, Bob. Is that, that okay? No? Is that a, that's a yes? You're not very loud right now. Okay. Um, my second lecture for the evening is significantly shorter than this, so I'm sure you'll all be happy about that. Luke Timothy Johnson, he's a very good gospel scholar. I, I appreciate his work very much. He's a Roman Catholic who is the professor of New Testament and early Christian history at Emory University in Atlanta. Speaking about this passage, what he says is this. The task demands intellectual honesty, the task of interpreting this text. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties, like this is pederasty or this is male prostitution or something like that. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? We must state our grounds for standing in tension with the clear commands of Scripture. Here's a man who's basically saying Paul unequivocally condemns all homosexual behavior. And then he goes on and says, but I'll explain why I disagree with Paul. Now, I appreciate the fact that he's honest about the text rather than trying to do exegetical gymnastics with it and change what it means. He says, I think it important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. Here's a, a Roman Catholic scholar saying this. An appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? I'd like to know what that is, too. We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to. He was making an interesting argument until he got to that last line, and then it just completely collapsed on itself. Let me at least point this out. Scholars like Luke Timothy Johnson and uh, Walter Wink in uh, New York uh, City at, at uh, uh, a major school there 
have been honest about the text. Dale Martin, who's at Yale University, he's uh, an outspoken, openly gay New Testament scholar, a brilliant man. And he says, I believe in the infallibility of, scholar, uh, of, of Scripture, and I believe that Paul is saying absolutely clearly, crystal clearly, homosexual behavior is unequivocally wrong. It's sinful. And yet, I'm going to disagree with Paul. I applaud these men for being honest about what the biblical text says. That is a plus, because you don't always get that. And what's interesting is, especially when you get closer to evangelical or conservative circles, you get people who say, um, I'm not sure it means this. I think it means X or Y or Z. They're not being as honest with the text because they want to obey the text. But the text that we have in front of us is too much for them to want to obey. Well, let me conclude with this. Paul won't allow us this option of rejecting his commands on the basis of our experience. Our experience does not trump God's design and creation. Paul grounds his argument in creation before there was any experience, before human beings had more than Adam and Eve in the world. And that, I think, is an extraordinarily important point. He's not grounding it in the Old Testament law. He's saying this is the design that God made of men and women. They are compatible physically with one another. And as my mother likes to say, she, she had marvelous quips. And uh, I think as a young man, I asked her what she thought of homosexual behavior. She said, well, I think it's wrong. She, she's a neatnik. Everything has to be organized in her home. And she says, and the reason I think it's wrong is because I believe in a place for everything and everything in its place. So I'll let you think through that. But Also kind of a provocative woman. Anyway, Paul was addressing humanity of all time. The proof of that is because he mentions lesbians, which didn't exist in Roman culture at the time. Or if they did, they were certainly frowned on, It was, and we have almost no evidence of it. Not just Roman culture, since he included lesbianism in his critique. Paul was explicitly against all homosexual behavior. It is unnatural. It is not the way that God designed us. That's why he brings in female and male. And it is at its core idolatrous. I'm going to even mention this. It's, it's not in the notes either. But I've pondered about this, about why is it that homosexual behavior is considered idolatrous? Well, the, the, the worst kind of idolatry, I would think, would be to worship oneself. And in homosexual behavior, one is getting as close to worshiping oneself as one can. You're worshiping someone who has got the same kind of plumbing as you and the same kind of design as you. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why you see, uh, you know, the stereotypical gyms with all the mirrors and, and these guys who, who are muscle-bound, who obviously not all of them are this way, but so many of them are in, involved in the gay community. There's an idolatry and a, a worship of self and others who are just like them. Okay, that's Paul's view of homosexual behavior. Now for the third part, and what, what I'd like to do, we'll go through these ten points briefly, but this will be something we may, we even after the, the uh, potluck dinner, have time for some questions before we get into the, the, the second section in Romans. Ten considerations for you. First of all, biology is not destiny. If we say that homosexual behavior is genetically triggered, that someone has uh, these tendencies uh, genetically that they, they simply can't avoid, then my response to that would be, first of all, Paul doesn't even recognize that, that there's a genetic component. It may be that there is. But if that's the case, his answer to that would be, well, that's a, a sinful tendency and you need to resist it. We say this when it comes to alcoholics, for example. What do we say to an alcoholic? That it's okay to uh, uh, drink and drive and hit a little girl? Or do we say, no, if you're an alcoholic, you need to abstain from alcohol for your sake and for the sake of others because you will hurt yourself and you will hurt others if you do not. If we were to view homosexual behavior as this kind of a thing, because most 
psychologists who are uh, analyzing homosexual behavior say this is not a choice. They're just genetically predisposed in this direction. Then the question is, is it not possible to treat this like we would treat alcoholism? If alcoholism truly is a disease, I think there, there's you know, a sinful component to it, but I would say biology is not destiny. If a person is an alcoholic, that does not mean that they have to drink. They recognize that they're alcoholics, and they say they won't touch a drink. When my colleagues at Dallas Seminary, both of his parents died relatively young from uh, cirrhosis of the liver. They were both alcoholics, and so he decided, I'm never going to have alcohol. I don't want to take the risk of being an alcoholic. When it comes to homosexual behavior, if it's not really a choice that someone chooses this kind of a lifestyle, then if we even took it in the sense of, okay, you have an inclination, not even calling it a disease, just an inclination, you do not need to yield to that. You don't need to give in to that inclination. All of us are born as sinners. All of us have inherited Adam's sin nature. And yet, each one of us has a different pattern of inclinations and, and temptations that are stronger or weaker depending on who you are. Some may have a very strong temptation towards lust, towards pornography. Others may have a strong temptation towards lying or stealing. We're, all, we're not all wired the same way, but all of us have Adam's sin nature. And there may well be some people who are wired in the direction of having a stronger inclination towards homosexual behavior. But again, biology is not destiny. Secondly, homosexuality, I think, is the new divorce in the church today. Back in the 50s and 60s, divorce was considered such a heinous sin in so many evangelical churches that you just didn't talk about it. And if somebody was divorced, they'd sit in the back of the church and they couldn't have any real meaningful roles in the church. It was, it was a very difficult time for us. Homosexuality is being treated that way today. Think back to that, that time, for those of you who were around back then, and, and how you viewed divorce. Now we have divorced pastors when we understand certain ways in which it's acceptable for somebody to be divorced and still be involved in ministry. And yet when it comes to homosexuality, it seems like that's the taboo that we just don't even want to deal with. Third, the power brokers of American Christianity are left-brain white males. That's been true for a long time. That's been how the church has been run in America largely. And when I say American Christianity, American evangelical Christianity, what we have inadvertently done is we've pushed out minorities, we've pushed out right-brainers, and we've pushed out women. And consequently, the church, I think, is hobbling along without all of its cylinders running because we don't have all those folks involved. When I was a young man, I went to uh, uh, Calvary Chapel on occasion. I grew up in, in Newport Beach with John Stevens right here. We, we grew up and did all sorts of things, Cub Scouts and other things together. It was great to see you again, John. Um, and um, now I, I had a brain fart. Where did I go? What's going on that? <laughs> Calvary Chapel, thank you. So Calvary Chapel, they had this... Uh, Maranatha Village, where artisans would be doing their artwork and musicians would be creating music. And a, an awful lot of the music and the, uh, uh, the arts and this sort of thing has come out of both Calvary Chapel and the movements that it spawned um, afterwards. It's remarkable. The normal evangelical, non-charismatic church has not done much to, to generate that kind of interest. And so those people have moved in other directions. And the directions they've gone into are both into charismatic circles and into circles that are not Christian but are, I don't want to say dominated by, but have a very large homosexual population as part of the component of that community. I know this for a fact from one of my sons. He, um, he had cancer when he was eight years old. He lost a kidney. And uh, he... He had to face death very, very early on. He's a very mature Christian. Uh, he went to University of Texas, majored in film, and now he's uh, a movie editor in Hollywood. He just finished his fifth movie, 
uh, called Focus with Will Smith. It's a Warner Brothers film. He's a second assistant editor, so you, he gets credit, which is good. And any movie he's involved in, we, we buy, of course. Um, but um, he's in a culture that is very artsy uh, and not uh, particularly left brain. And there, uh, it, 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 there's a large component that is homosexual, in part because that's where they're accepted. What I think the church needs to think about doing is broadening who we are by the very nature of who we are and not be just left brain white old men. Uh, we need to be um, much broader than that and embrace these people who have these kinds of talents and bring them back into the fold. Fourth, homosexuality and the Imago Dei are the image of God. The scripture teach Scriptures teach, I think, very clearly that we cannot destroy the image of God. What we can do to it is distort it, but not destroy it. James talks about how do not kill your brother because that's somebody who's created in the image of God. It wasn't just Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God, but all human beings are created in the image of God, even the most evil types. In fact, you could think about the the, the, the worst criminals, the most uh, evil people you could ever possibly imagine, and the, all they have done is distort the image of God, but they have not destroyed it. There's a flip side to their characteristics that is actually positive. And there's a lot of things, in fact, that are in their character that are positive, that don't need to have a flip side. What I want to challenge you to do is think about those in the homosexual community that have some characteristics that really are genuinely positive because they're created in the image of God. Most of us are uncomfortable thinking about that, and yet that's what our theology demands of us. Fifth, we often say, hate the sin but love the sinner. Here's the problem when it comes to dealing with homosexuals. They identify, this is fifth and sixth really, they identify themselves first and foremost as gay or lesbian. Now, if I were to ask you, let's say before we even got into this uh, whole uh, lecture tonight, and I asked you to pull out a piece of paper and write down ten adjectives to describe yourself, my guess is virtually none of you would have written heterosexual. Not because you're not heterosexual, I presume most, if not all of you are, but because that's not how you think of yourself primarily, or even in the first ten spots, some of you not even in the first fifty spots. But for a homosexual... For a gay or lesbian, that's almost always the very first uh, identity marker that they have. This is one of the things that we need to do to deal with these folks is to help them to recognize that life is more than being a sexual creature. And sex is too important to make that be the identity marker of who you are. There's actually a book with a title that's similar to that. And I'm, I'm giving to you some resources on some literature and websites that deal with the, uh, some of these issues. But here's the point. I, I have a relative who's now an ex-relative, married into the family, later uh, was divorced, um, who is uh, gay. And he told me, you can't say hate the sin but love the sinner because I identify myself as gay so much if you say that, then all I hear is, you hate me. Those are things we need to think through. And part of that requires us to get to know these people and to love them to the point where we help them to have a self-identification that is other than homosexual is the first thing they think about. Now, that may sound kind of radical to you, but I think loving them is exactly what we need to do. Seventh, there have been a lot of groups that have attempted to convert homosexuals to heterosexuality. In the last three years, I've come to the conviction that that is probably uh, a non-starter. The, the, the conversion success is in the 20 percentile, about, about 20, 25 percent. You get one out of four people, one out of five people, actually becomes converted to heterosexuality. The goal for homosexuals who are Christians is not to be converted to heterosexuality, but to be pure in their lifestyle. And there are some, most of them, will never be able to change their attraction. 
But attraction, same-sex attraction, is no more of a sin than opposite-sex attraction is a sin. It's when you act on it, that's when it's sin. And so that brings us to number eight, a better understanding. Celibate gaze. There's a book by Wesley Hill that is going to be listed in the resource handout you'll get later. Wesley Hill was a doctoral student at Edinburgh University. Now he's a professor here in the United States. And he wrote a book that was published by Zonovan where he spoke about being gay himself. But he also spoke about how um, he has not practiced. He says, I have same-sex attraction, but it's sin to practice this. And so my goal is to live a pure lifestyle. I know that means that I can never... Um, capitalize on my sexuality, just like an alcoholic should not capitalize on on, uh, their love of alcohol. And so he has opened up my mind to think about different ways of thinking about these. This this actually happened to to me years ago after I was a a youth director at a a church in uh, Southern California, and I came back from uh, my time in seminary, met with one of the high school students, and uh, he told me that, um, that he was gay. And he said, but I've never practiced. Now, that, this was 1975. It completely confused my categories. If I hear that you're homosexual, then that means you're a practicing homosexual. That's what I assumed. And he said, uh, the, the, these temptations are just driving me nuts, but I do not want to shame Jesus Christ. And he opened my mind to understand some of the profound struggles that these dear brothers and sisters in Christ are facing. A year later, he committed suicide. And he did so because he did not want to shame Christ, but he also wasn't getting any help from the Christian community. And I'm afraid 40 years later, we're not doing a much better job. In terms of a better understanding, there's also married gays, and by that I'm not talking about same-sex marriages. There's another book, and I don't think this is listed on the resource handout, but a book that came out in the last year or two, where the author said, I have strong same-sex attraction, but I am married to a person of the opposite sex. This man was married to a woman. He confessed these temptations, but he said, I have not acted on them. And uh, so... You might call somebody like that having bisexual attraction. But he, 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 what we're getting nowadays is, is people kind of coming out of the closet talking about these issues in a way that before was so taboo in Christian communities. And now these are Christian books that are coming out. These are important things for us to wrestle with. Number nine, compassion and conviction. Just the recognition that the very first thing that you say to a gay or lesbian individual should not be that they're a sinner. We don't do that with other people. Why is it that we think, oh, that person's gay, I'm going to treat him in a different way, and and if I'm going to share the gospel with him, the first thing I need to point out is that you're a sinner. That's not the first thing we think of with others. Why is it that we do this with, with homosexuals? What we really need to do is have dialogue among ourselves that is within the church And we need to have dialogue between us and those who are in the gay community, both Christians and non-Christians. Try to understand better what's going on and try to stand with conviction for what the Bible teaches and at the same time with compassion for those who are struggling with these profound issues. Thank you very much.